I'm going to uh, guess that most of you have heard this old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. Now, I know a, a lot of these sayings probably don't travel from one generation so well to the other, so let me just take a moment to, to describe this concept. Uh, when we become so used to things in this life, when things become so ordinary and routine to us, after a while we, we take them for granted or, or we make certain assumptions or, or uh, let's be honest, we have contempt for certain things. Uh, uh, sometimes we get careless. Uh, sometimes we become apathetic about things and, and sometimes we have the strangest and most unusual reactions uh, when things happen that uh, we just didn't expect. Okay, let me give you an illustration of familiarity breeding contempt. Imagine that you are a zookeeper and every day it's your job to go and feed the lions. And while you take your normal precautions and every day you give them their food without incident or without any uh, uh, unexpected things happening to you, after a while, because it happens so regularly, so routinely, um, you can start to grow apathetic to the danger of feeding lions. Uh, you start to assume that every day you're just going to go through this process. It's going to be safe and normal like it always is until one day all of a sudden the lions turn on you and attack you because you had let your guard down. You had contempt for the danger of working with wild animals. The same thing happens to us uh, so many times in our lives where things become so normalized to us or we get so used to them. After a while, they don't have the same uh, amazing impact that they once might have. And the same is true about our faith and about our Lord. That happens to be the very situation that we're going to deal with today as we go into our next Epiphany lesson. And in each of these, we see these little glimpses of Jesus' hidden glory. And today, we're going to be dealing with the townspeople of the city of Nazareth. And, and I need to tell you right up front, uh, this actually happens on two occasions. The one we'll talk about, the first one was much more violent in reaction to this one. This one, it, it, the people are just much more apathetic towards him. They're too familiar with Jesus. They, they can't buy into the concept that he could be possible the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And so I'm going to show you this lesson. Um, it, I'm going to let it run just a little bit uh, on the end. It attacks on a couple verses and helps to give a fuller definition uh, to the real challenge that Jesus was facing in the city of Nazareth as we find he's one of the most amazing Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Right. Uh, the attack on verses were that, uh, where Jesus explains how a prophet uh, 
serves without honor in his own hometown. And he's, he's describing and actually teaching about this familiarity breeding contempt. Uh, there's some background and context things that we need to understand, and I already implied to you the fact that uh, this is now the second visit of Jesus' ministry where he goes to the city of Nazareth. The first one of these visits is recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, and that was early on in his ministry while Nazareth was still his base of operation in his own hometown. On a Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue there in Nazareth. Uh, he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he read a specific passage, and then rolls up the scroll, gives it back, and then his teaching and commentary for the day was, I'm the fulfillment of that Isaiah prophecy. Basically, he's claiming to be Messiah. And already there, we see this contempt that the people of Nazareth had for Jesus because of their familiarity. Uh, they have a violent reaction to this. They assume that Jesus is just another man and that he's blaspheming the name of God. So on that occasion, they become so upset that they literally drag Jesus out of the synagogue and their intention is to kill him. They're going to throw him off a, a nearby cliff. Now, of course, Scripture tells us, and we know from what the rest of the Gospels record, they failed. Uh, it says he simply walked through the middle of the crowd. Uh, he miraculously uh, rescues himself and moves on with the rest of his ministry. So the very first question that would face us now, I'm sorry, uh, is why on earth would Jesus uh, choose to go back to Nazareth a second time? This is much later in his ministry. And, and even though uh, probably a year or so had passed, you would have to assume that the people still uh, have these violent reactions and these assumptions about Jesus. Why would he put his life at risk again and, and go back to Nazareth? Well, Matthew provided that answer in the context for our lesson. Um, and it wasn't only in Nazareth, but it was throughout uh, Galilee and, and really the whole land of Israel. Uh, his heart went out to people. He cared that they heard the truth. And that's true of the, his own hometown people in Nazareth as it was throughout the whole land of Israel. Jesus wanted people to know that God kept his promise of sending Messiah and as challenging as it would be for them to understand he was that fulfillment, he wanted them to know he was there to rescue them from their sins. And he wasn't afraid to put his life at risk by going back to Nazareth because let's be honest, that's what the job and role of Messiah is, to risk his life to rescue and save sinners. And so Jesus embarks now on this second journey to Nazareth because he wanted them to be rescued from their sins just like everybody else. Now Matthew also provides the rest of the context and actually today's lesson doesn't take place too much long after uh, the lesson from last week. And that last week's lesson was Jesus showing amazing mercy as he and his disciples went over to the region of the Decapolis, the area of the Ten Cities, a Gentile region where he wanted to also share the message of Messiah. Um, and hopefully you recall or you've had a chance to review uh, the fact that once they arrived there, he and his disciples, they meet two demon-possessed men. And they're violent men. They were living out amongst uh, the graves of the dead, and people just simply avoided them, but not Jesus. Uh, and as soon as he gets there, he casts the demons out of these two men. That's where the herd of pigs comes in. The evil spirits go into them. They jump off the cliff and kill themselves. And the man wanted to go back and be uh, one of his disciples. And Jesus said, no, you stay, you witness to your own people. They need to hear this truth as well. So what happens is they get back in the boat. They go to the west side of the Sea of Galilee and land near his adopted hometown of Capernaum. And that's kind of where our action picks up. And in so doing, as a precedent to what we study today, Jesus does four more amazing miracles. Um, one he had done actually before he um, uh, goes to 
the big one, let's put it like that. As he's on his way to the home of Jairus, there's a woman who has this blood disease, and we're told she had it for 18 years. She touches his garment, she's completely healed. Uh, he says, power's gone out of me. And that, that shows he's in a state of humiliation. He asks, who, who touched me and, and who took my power? Not in a mean way, but he wanted to be able to speak to this woman. After curing her, he goes on to that home of Jairus where he raises Jairus' daughter back to, li to life. Taliathakum, that phrase, little one or, or daughter, get up. He wants her to have her earthly life back because there was more for God had for her to do. Then there's two other ones. One is uh, before he leaves the city of Capernaum, there are these two blind men. Uh, it's assumed that they were... Uh, fighting the genetic birth disorder of blindness, and they beg for their sight. They cry out, Son of David. They knew who he was, Messiah. And uh, Jesus heals both of them. And then last but not least, as he's on his way, he runs into yet another demon-possessed man. And this time, the demon manifested itself by taking away the man's ability to speak. Now, these miracles are going uh, to be highly critical once we get into the main part of our lesson. And it's no accident or coincidence that uh, several of these take place as Jesus is heading to his hometown of Nazareth. So now imagine we're on the journey out of Capernaum to the city of Nazareth. Not only are the 12 disciples with him, but there's large groups of people who continually are following along with Jesus. They're all witnesses of these events. And then the end of the destination finally is that hometown of Nazareth where we told that on the very next Sabbath day after they arrived, Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom and he was teaching the day's lesson. What makes this visit much different than his first visit as recorded in Luke is Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught. We don't know what section of the Old Testament he read. We don't know his commentary or his teaching on it. Uh, at very least, we can assume it, it wasn't so, uh, if you will, uh, in a tense where the people decided that they needed to try and kill Jesus a second time. That never takes place in this situation. But that doesn't mean that there weren't problems with what Jesus was teaching, or dare I say so much more how Jesus was teaching. And Mark records for us the reaction that as Jesus taught, the people are just blown away. And, and so far in our Epiphany study, we've seen Mark use four different Greek words to describe this concept of the reaction of amazement to Jesus, who he is and, and what he was doing. And this one Mark shared with us in the very first Epiphany lesson. It's that concept of amazement like you're sitting there. I walk up and out of nowhere, I just slap you across the face. That's going to amaze you. It, 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 I'd like to remind you, it'll tick you off, but you're going to go, what, what, what's that about? That's the way Jesus struck the people in the Nazareth synagogue that day. It just blows them away. It, this comes out of nowhere, and they cannot conceive that this man is capable of doing these things, of teaching this way, or of the other things that they've either seen or heard reported to them. And that's what Mark talks about. What's the wisdom that's been given to him that even, that even does miracles? Now, these pictures are meant to represent two things. Besides the familiarity that the people of Nazareth had with Jesus, they had a, a pretty good working knowledge of who this guy was. And nowhere in their history of knowing Jesus had they ever witnessed him participating in any rabbinical training, which, so you understand how this normally works, um, some of the best and brightest of the young men of Jewish families would be handpicked by established rabbis, and they would take them as disciples, and they would personally instruct these young men, and they'd go through bar mitzvah, and then they'd uh, work and, and continue to grow in their spiritual knowledge, and eventually they would be the future pastors in Israel or the future rabbis. 
These people knew that Jesus had not been selected by any rabbi and he had not received any specific training. Now maybe it's possible he had some instructions somewhere, somehow, or maybe it was his own natural speaking abilities and talents. Maybe they could possibly uh, figure that out that way, but the real problem comes in this fact that he was doing these amazing miracles. So you understand, uh, it was pretty much commonly accepted within the culture of that day that some of the rabbis would have been able to do some of the miracles. In fact, there's records of that within the, the four Gospels, that sometimes God did grant that through the religious leaders in the nation of Israel. But it was the level of miracles, the kinds of miracles, uh, the power and ability that Jesus possessed to do these things that they just could not get their head around. And this is where the context really plays in. Uh, starting with Isaiah 35, there's three different specific sections in Isaiah. And I chose this one because it's pretty obvious that God is talking about. There are going to be certain things that when Messiah comes, he alone will be able to do. Only Messiah will be capable of doing these kinds of miracles. And it was amongst the oral traditions of the Jewish faith that there were four specific miracles that no other ordinary rabbi could do, and they acknowledged only Messiah could do them. The first is that the Messiah would be able to cleanse people of leprosy. And Jesus had performed that miracle, not this time going to Nazareth, but he had actually done that immediately before going to the region of Decapolis. And while that might not have been common knowledge amongst the people of Nazareth, the groups of people following Jesus witness these things. And it's the kind of news that you just don't keep to yourself. This guy cleanses people of leprosy. That's news, big news. The second is to exercise demons which show themselves in either deafness or muteness. And the very last miracle that Jesus performed before arriving in Nazareth was that demon-possessed man who could not speak. He exercises that demon, the man speaks, and the people are blown away. Miracle two. The third one is, is that the Messiah alone would be able to heal people of birth defects. And that's the dividing line. Some of the rabbis were able to perform miracles, God would bless them to do so, of lesser illnesses. But there's nobody other than Messiah who would have the capability to actually take a disease or a birth defect and reverse that for somebody later in life. And Jesus had just done that with those two blind men. And then the last but not least, the fourth messianic miracle would be raising people from the dead. And of course, that was one of the main things that Jesus had done on his way to Nazareth. While still in Capernaum, he went to Jairus' home, raised his daughter, back to life. Now here's the problem for the people of Nazareth. Familiarity had bred contempt for them. They, they knew Jesus. They knew who he was. To them he was just another man and yet they have this conundrum of how on earth can this guy that we know so well, our neighbor, buddy Jesus, the guy who lived down the street all those years, how on earth is he able to do these four messianic miracles and more? And in fact, as Mark goes on, he tells us what the real problem is. Isn't this the carpenter? They had watched him grow up learning his father's trade. In his father's workshop, learning the skills of carpentry. And they thought he was like every other kid in Nazareth, growing up learning the father's skill set, because typically the sons took over the father's business. And being the eldest son, that would have fallen to Jesus. And they assumed he's just a woodworker. And then they go on to say, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? 
aren't his sisters here with us? They knew Jesus was the eldest child of Joseph and Mary, and they knew the family. They knew him by name. They probably saw him playing out in the streets or uh, going to synagogue together. To them, this family was just like every other family in Nazareth, and Jesus was like every other man who had grown up in their city. And so they couldn't put two and two together. Jesus is just one of us. And yet, on the other hand, he's doing these things that God tells us only Messiah could do. And they don't have the ability to put together how Jesus could be the fulfillment of God's promises and prophecies. And so Mark concludes this section by saying Jesus was an offense to them. Now, I know we, we know what the word offense or to offend somebody means, but you have to see it from the original way of looking at it. The original word is scandalon. That's where we get our English word scandal. And even that carries some baggage with us. So let me point out the fact that scandalon is a literal description of the tripping mechanism of a trap. It's what causes the downfall. It's what creates the problem. Jesus created this problem for the people in Nazareth. He was the tripping point for their trusting in Messiah. Because on the one hand, they had such a day-to-day -day working knowledge of Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary. And on the other hand, they had this new revelation and witnesses who would testify to the fact that this guy was doing everything the Old Testament promised that Messiah would do. They could not get these two facts to come together in their heads. And so while they didn't try to kill him this time, Mark tells us that he was not as effective as he was in other places in Israel. There was very little faith created there through the work of the Holy Spirit. And even the miracles that he ordinarily would have performed in towns and villages, even they were at a minimum in the city of Nazareth because it was such a desert land of spiritual life. It's a pretty to-the-point lesson that Mark shares with us. And that's one of the things I appreciate about the Holy Spirit, having Mark record these things for us because he gets right to the heart of the matter. He just lays it out for us. And then the Holy Spirit kind of says, okay, why don't you wrestle with this all week long? Why don't you try to work through some of these things? Why don't you put yourself in the, the same place as the people of Nazareth and see what an amazing Savior your God has given to you when these little glimpses of glory come shining through? Because if we're honest about Jesus Christ, and I hope we can be, he is really offensive. In fact, not only does Jesus continue to offend this world, but if we're completely honest, sometimes Jesus offends us. What do I mean by that? Well, let's use a couple of cultural examples. One, the world is offended when Jesus tells us there is a specific way in which love and marriage are to operate in this world. In fact, Jesus tells us God designed it very uniquely as one of his most amazing blessings that he gives us for this earthly life. If you want to, marriage might be one of the best examples of the glory of God coming, shining through the hiddenness of this sinful and broken world. Jesus offends the world when he says, you must receive these blessings and enjoy them in the way in which God designed them. And so you don't get to pick and choose how marriage works. You can't call one thing love that God doesn't call love. There is a specific design to this blessing. And if you choose not to follow that design, you throw this blessing away. And try as you might and come up with all your counterfeit things that you want to call marriage or love, God says you will never find blessing in those. 
And while we might be busy doing our tisk tisk at how the world looks at this blessing of God, let's be honest, sometimes Jesus' concept of marriage offends us too. Well, what do you mean by that? We honor Christian marriage. We recognize that God says one man and one woman. We all acknowledge God has designed this as a lifelong commitment, and that's true. But how many of us go on our merry way each week and we take this blessing of God for granted? In fact, maybe have grown apathetic about this blessing that God uses to not only enhance our earthly lives, but to let his glory come shining through. Who but God could create such a unique relationship so that one spouse completes another spouse and we actually have a support system that God himself says leads directly back to our creation and to his design for our lives. And if after a while we simply take marriage for granted as this blessing of God, and we don't put our hearts and souls into it, we will be much like the world, offended that God has a specific way for marriage for us Christians to work. And so it might be a bit of offensive. We might trip over Jesus when he says, I want you to love each other the same way that I have chosen to love you. Our sinful nature hates that. It's offended by it. Jesus continues to offend the world when he teaches us there are only two genders, male and female. It's offensive to the world because the world oftentimes doesn't like the hand that has been dealt. And so it wants to make up its own rules as it goes along. And so far, I think there's dozens and dozens of newly created genders that this world wants us to recognize and expects us to simply comply with their way of thinking that people can pick and choose who and what they want to be when God says, that's not how the way it works. You are the created. I am the creator. I have created this amazing balance between men and women. And when you try to destroy that, when you try to manipulate it in ways that I never intended, it will cease to be the blessing that I chose to give to this life. And considering the fact that there is genuinely gender dysphoria, meaning people are confused about the genders because of the brokenness of this sinful world, even in that situation, God doesn't allow for an exemption saying, okay, pick and choose whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. God says no. There is a right way. There is a way to fix even the world's most sinful problems, but you must follow the truth of what God says. And again, we might find ourselves looking down our long noses at the world going, how foolish can they be that there's all of these made-up genders? But the reality is is that sometimes Jesus' observations about the Father's creation of man and woman offends us. I'm not entirely sure because I know what happens in society and our culture, but I've also seen within the church that there's been more confusion and maybe offense over the roles in which God has given to men and given to women. Because sin has destroyed God's beautiful and perfect creation, even within the church, we find that there's arguments and sometimes fights over who should or who shouldn't do what. And while the principles are true and God has clearly spelled them out in his word, sometimes we human beings, because of our insecurities, or let's be honest, because of our sinful human pride, sometimes we go to the extremes and we start to try and play God saying, well, that's not your role or that's not your role. What God would have us do is set aside our offense and maybe take a step back and appreciate how carefully he has crafted man and woman. 
And how in a perfect world it was meant to be this beautiful balance, each gender to play off one another, each to support and help one another, and it is sin which has twisted and destroyed God's amazing creation. And because we simply assume there are two, male and female, sometimes we're so offended that we forget that Jesus says, I want you to work together as parts of a body so that ultimately you can serve him as our head, but he has designed it this way to be a blessing to each and every one of us. Because when one part of the body works the way it was designed with another part of the body, it's not just a beautiful creation. It's how God has blessed us to make our way through this life. And nothing is more offensive to this world than when Jesus says, you were created with purpose. You were created with the purpose of worshiping your creator. That there is one true God and nothing, absolutely nothing, should be put on the same level or plane as your creator. And yet look at what this world has done. It wants to worship itself. It wants to worship other parts of the creation. It doesn't want to even acknowledge the creator. And so this world is offended when Jesus, or Jesus through his word or through his disciples, wants to teach the fact that we didn't simply come into this world by accident, but we were created with purpose to worship our wonderful God. And let's be honest with ourselves enough to recognize that sometimes that offends us too. Sometimes we have become so used to the fact that we are God's creation. And it's so normalized that we would worship our creator that much like the people of Nazareth, we can start to take our God and our privilege of worshiping him for granted. I'll be the first one at the front of this line to say, I'm not always thrilled to death when I walk into the presence of our divine creator. And I say that as a pastor because I have to work really hard to not just let this become a job. I want to sit down and I want to study God's word and I want to bring the explanation of that word to you with true amazing power, not my own but God's. I want to see you excited about the fact that God loves us so much that not only would he make us, but he wasn't going to allow us to be destroyed or separated from him for eternity. But I myself have to fight the temptations of, oh, I've heard this a thousand times before. One, once in a while we are offended when all of a sudden God himself says, I have not created you to worship me for one hour. I have created you to worship me with every second of every day, every ounce of energy of your lives. That offends our sinful nature when we are reminded that our entire lives are a gift of God and all he asks in return is that we would acknowledge his grace and his power in our lives. It is offensive to the world and to us that this God would say the only way that you can ultimately love each other is when you first and foremost understand what it means to love me. And that has to go back to the reality that God chose to love us. And if all of those things you're saying, well, pastor, I'm not really that offended by those things, then let me give you this one. I've saved the best for last. The cross offends all of us. Not the new man, not the part of faith, not the part that truly acknowledges that Christ is Messiah and he sacrificed, he risked his life for us, but that sinful nature which fights against the idea that there's nothing that we can do to make things right with God. Deep within us is this sinful connection to our Father that makes us want to try and pay God back for all the bad that we've done or at very least hope that he notices how good we've been this week. 
And God looks at us and says, it doesn't work that way. And that offends us because we want to try. We want our certainty of salvation to be something that we control. And God says, I'm not going to let you do that. I want you to understand it is not offensive for God to choose to ask his son to become one of us and to sacrifice his life so that we could be with God as we should have always been. Not only for this life, but ultimately for eternity. And so Jesus gladly walks into this world and sometimes into our lives and chooses to offend us, to let us trip over him. Because while our heads struggle to understand all this, our hearts, by the Holy Spirit's gift of faith, embrace it without offense. Last but not least, might I suggest that maybe the best way for we Christians to not become contemptuous, to not simply take our God for granted, to not end up going through the motions of worship, is to study and then mimic our Savior's heart. Because he loved his creation so much that he didn't want a single one of them to be like a lost sheep trying to meander its way through life. Instead, he throws his own life down to rescue that sheep. Truth is, is that if we actually share the faith that we've been blessed with, with those who do not yet have it, it can't but help to remind us what a precious gift that we have been given. And if you share your faith with the world and it offends them, give thanks to God because you're following in the footsteps of the most amazing offender of all. What do people outside our churches know about Jesus? Have they ever had a conversation with a practicing Christian about Jesus? Answers to questions like these could really help us share the most amazing news, the love of God for all of us through Jesus. So we asked. And here's what people, your friends and neighbors said. 57% said they're a Christian. 9% are active Christians. They regularly go to church, pray, and read the Bible. Useful starting place. But what do they actually know about Jesus? 21% think he's God, while 30% think he's a spiritual leader or prophet. But only 60% think he was an actual, real, historical person. Our job here is clear. Let's make sure everyone gets to hear that Jesus actually lived and walked on earth and that he claimed he was God. How are we going to do this? Well. 67% said they know one of us, an active follower of Jesus, and we're most likely to be their family and friends. But have we ever spoken to them about Jesus? 58% of those who know us have had a conversation about Jesus with us. Now that's a great start. But what do they think about Jesus after that conversation? One in five are open to knowing and experiencing more about him. That's one in five of your friends and family members, the people you know really well, who are waiting for you to talk about Jesus with them. And we found out that talking to someone who knows Jesus was really important in helping 36% of us to follow Jesus for ourselves. So let's talk Jesus.